If you would, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 22 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of each row, and you'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles on page 817. Again, that's Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this man who was brought to Jesus. God, we thank you for the people that brought him. Yeah, but we thank you more than anything for what your son does in this passage. That he heals him. That he gives him new life. That he battles against Satan and brings the kingdom of God in this man's life. Father, we ask that as we look at this passage tonight, God, that you would help us to not take lightly the words of your Son. Lord, you would, by your Spirit, impress them upon us. And that we would leave with a desire to live differently because of the claim that your Son makes on us. It's in his name and by the power of your spirit that we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, before Easter, we were in Matthew uh, 12, 15 through 21. And there, Matthew explained that Jesus does what he does. He, he ministers in the way he ministers. He, he does these miraculous things because the spirit of God is on him. The spirit of God is on upon him to empower him to complete God's mission in the world. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's out there doing things by the Spirit of God. 
And so it shouldn't really surprise us that the next conflict that we're going to come to in the Gospel of Matthew between Jesus and the Pharisees is going to center on the issue of the Spirit of God. Jesus is going to do this miraculous thing. This guy is, is brought to Jesus. He's oppressed by demons. He's, he's blind. He's mute. And Jesus heals him so that he can see, so that he can speak. He casts out the demons. The crowds see this and they're amazed and they, they wonder if this guy, if Jesus, is, is someone special because of what he does. The Pharisees overhear the crowds and they say, no. He does this because he's empowered by Satan to do it. Jesus responds, obviously, to what they say. And he explains as he does this that you are either following him, you're either with him, or you're against him. There's, there's no middle ground, there's no third option, there's no neutral position. Everybody has to respond to Jesus. Everybody has to respond to the things that he does, and you're either going to be with him on his side, following him in discipleship, or you're going to be against him with the Pharisees. And as Jesus does this, he talks about this, this thing that you all are probably wondering about this passage, about what is this, this unforgivable sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that he accuses the Pharisees of. Well, we're going to get to all of that. But even though that, that, that is important, and it's a big theological, theological concept that we need to know what it means, more important than knowing what that means is understanding the fact that Jesus says that we are either following him or not. That's, that's the main point of this passage. That's what we need to see tonight. And that's what the Spirit of God needs to impress on our hearts. Because that's what this unforg- unforgivable sin comes out of. So... Uh, Let's look at the passage, and we'll see these things come out. The first two verses, verses 22 and 23, are simply where Matthew introduces us to what is going to take place in this story. Sorry, my water bottle is broken, and every time I try to drink water out of the straw, I feel like I'm going to have a brain aneurysm, so... That obviously has nothing to do with the sermon, though. All right. There's this guy who's brought to Jesus. He's demon-oppressed, not possessed, demon-oppressed, and he's blind and he's mute. Jesus heals him. He sees and he speaks to demonstrate that he's actually been healed. But what we should notice about that, even though that's, that's an amazing thing and the crowds are rightly amazed at what Jesus does, notice how little time Matthew spends on it. That whole thing is in one verse. Demon, oppressed guy, blind, mute, brought to Jesus. Jesus heals him so that he speaks and sees. He doesn't spend hardly any time on that. Could you imagine a a newspaper article like this today where where something like this happened? A demon, oppressed guy is brought into a church. Someone heals him so that he can, can talk and see for potentially the first time in his life. I don't think that that would just be a small paragraph at the beginning of the article that gets on to something more important. It would be the big big deal, the thing that the author would want to emphasize. But Matthew doesn't do that. He He just blows right through this healing story because he wants to get to what's more important. And that's because he knows... As he's writing his gospel, his goal is, is not 
that his readers, that, that we who are reading his gospel would see Jesus as just this guy who can cast out demons and heal people. Those are, those are good things. Those are significant. We should see those in the gospel and we should worship Jesus because of it. But more important than that to Matthew is that we would not just see what Jesus does, but that we would see who he is in his gospel. And that's the big thing in this passage. The big thing in this passage is not that Jesus has done this miraculous thing. The big thing is that because of who Jesus is, we cannot just be ambivalent towards him. We have to take a side. And that's what Matthew kind of blows through this to get to. He heals the guy. And then we see in 23 how the crowds respond. They're amazed and they ask a question. They say, can this be the son of David? This could be a confusing question to us. David was a king in the Old Testament who reigned over Israel somewhere around 1000 B.C. So obviously it's not a literal, is he David's son? In that time, they didn't have nearly the medical technology that we have, but they understood that people don't live to be a thousand years old. So they know that Jesus is not actually David's literal son, like Solomon was, or Absalom was, or all the other sons that he had. What they're talking about is this promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7. Way back then, David has become king, uh, He's doing stuff to honor God, and he says that he wants to build a house for God. He's talking about a temple. God comes to David, and he says, no, you're not going to build a house for me. Instead, I'm going to build a house for you. And he talks about this line of kings that's going to happen after David. And he promises to David that he will have a descendant on the throne reigning over his people forever. And the Jews understood that this was a significant promise. That's why it's written down in the Bible. That's why they they follow it throughout the reign of David and his sons after him. And they connect that promise that he made to David to one of the things that they knew that the Messiah would be. The Messiah would be a whole lot of things, but at least one of them was that he would be a king in the line of David. And so when these people ask, can this be the son of David, they are asking about Jesus. Is he the one who sent from God to reign over his people forever? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's been promised? Is he the one who's coming that we've been waiting for? That's what they're asking. It's not just an idle question. They see him do this, just like they've seen him do other stuff, and they know that he's someone significant, and so they want to know if he's that significant. Is he the Messiah? That's what they're asking. The Pharisees, in verse 24, hear this. They hear the crowds, how they respond to Jesus, how they're, how they're amazed at what Jesus has done. And so they answer the question that the crowds ask. The crowds ask, is he the Messiah? They say, no. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's empowered by Satan. So they go to pretty much the complete opposite of who the crowds think Jesus is. They say he gets his his power to cast out demons, to heal people, to do other miraculous things from the devil. They've already done this before. It's not surprising that they do it again. At this point in Jesus' ministry, everything that he's done up to this point, they know is supernatural. There's no other way to explain all the stuff that he does. And so they either have to admit to themselves that Jesus is empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill the mission of God in the world, like he says he is, or they have to accuse him of something else. And so they say he's empowered by Satan. 
and they dismiss him. Verses 25 through the end are where the important stuff happens. This is where Jesus responds. But the first thing we should see here, as Jesus responds, is these three words that Matthew tells us at the beginning of verse 25, before Jesus starts speaking. He says, knowing their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. Talking about the Pharisees. He doesn't say that Jesus overheard their thoughts. He doesn't say that Jesus could guess what they were thinking. He doesn't say that Jesus afterwards said this. He says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Matthew could have said all of those other things if he wanted to, but he didn't. He was perfectly clear because as he says this, as he describes how Jesus responds to these people, saying who he is in response to them, He's describing who he is because of how he responded. He knew their thoughts. And this is one of those places in the Gospels where we get a a, a bit of a glimpse into the fact that Jesus isn't just a man. He's not just an ordinary guy. Because I know and you know that there's no way for me to know with 100% absolute certainty what anyone in this room is thinking. We can guess at what people think. We can get pretty close. We can, we can maybe even guess it right. But we cannot know the thoughts of other people all the time with 100% certainty. The fact that Jesus can do this says that he's someone different than us. And as we study the Bible and passages like Matthew 12, 25, where it talks about God knowing things that other people don't know, because of that, we begin to understand that God is all-knowing. God knows everything. He's, he's omniscient is the word that, that people use. And what that means is that God, and Jesus is God, knows everything that he could possibly know. He knows everything that could possibly be known. He knows all. And here he knows their thoughts. And the implications for us should be pretty clear. God knows our thoughts. That should be convicting to us. That just, just that alone, the fact that God knows our thoughts. There's two specific ways that this should cause us to reevaluate what we think about. The first is that God knows what we think about. Just, just that obvious thing. He knows everything that we ever think about. He knows what we think about when no one else is around. He knows what we think about when that person that we like is around. He knows what we think about when that person that we don't like is around. He knows what we think about when we're alone with ourselves with the computer. He knows what we think about when we're singing songs of worship to him or we're uh, hearing the word taught to us. He knows what we think about when we're too busy to, to think about anything that we should be thinking about. God knows our thoughts. And that should bother us in, in a good way. It should cause us to want to think about what he calls us to think about. The second way it should bother us is that God knows what we don't think about. He knows 
all those times when we don't think about him. He knows all those times and exactly how long it has been since we've thought about the grace that he's shown us in Christ. He knows exactly what we do and and do not think all of the time. He knows what we think about when we think about stuff that we shouldn't, and he knows what we think about when we don't think about what we should. God knows our thoughts. And the important thing for us is that Christ died for every single one of those thoughts. All the time when we're not thinking about what we're, we should be thinking about, or all the times when we're thinking about something that we shouldn't be thinking about, Christ died for those thoughts because they're sin. And this is why Paul says that he takes every thought and makes it obedient to Christ. He takes every single thought captive and makes it obedient to Christ. He does this because he knows that God knows his thoughts. And he wants to be obedient to Christ even in in what goes on in his head that no one else knows about and no one else could possibly know about because he knows that God knows about it. And so he takes every thought captive and makes it obedient to Christ and we should do the same thing. Now we get to Jesus' response. He knows their thoughts and he responds to them. And he's going to respond to them in two ways. The first way, he uses logic. And I hadn't really realized this before but I thought about it today. I've said this quite a bit as we've gone through Matthew. In some ways, it's kind of surprising to me exactly how logical it, Jesus is when he responds with these people. But I think maybe that's, that's a call for us to be a little more logical in how we respond to people. But he responds first with logic in the, the first four verses, and then he responds to them by simply pointing them to the exclusive truth of the gospel, and specifically the exclusive, exclusive truth of who he is. We're going to get to that in verse 30 and onward. But the first thing is the logic. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. That's a a very universally accepted statement. Division is bad, unity is good. Doesn't matter if it's a kingdom or a house or a city. Division causes weakness, unity causes strength. It's the way things work. Abraham Lincoln got this in his, his speech where he uses this passage to talk about the house divided. He talks about how slavery is weak in the U.S. because the nation is divided on it. The character Jack on the TV show Lost got this when he told everyone that they could either live together or die alone. He's, he's basically channeling Jesus here. Though he probably didn't know it. Simple. He's saying... Division is bad, unity is good. And that leads into what he's going to say in the very next verse. He says, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What he's saying here is he's he's, he's using logic with the Pharisees and he's saying, You're saying that I cast out demons by the power of Satan. That doesn't make any sense. 
Why would Satan empower someone to cast out someone who's empowered by Satan? It's, it's illogical. It means that his kingdom is fighting against itself and he's the one that, that's causing it to happen. He's saying that Satan wouldn't work that way. Even Satan gets this universal truth that, that division is bad and unity is good. In verse 27, Jesus turns the logic on the Pharisees. He says, you say, I get my power from Satan. But some of your sons, some of, some of your disciples, some of your guys cast out demons. Where do they get their power from? And obviously the Pharisees wouldn't say, that, well, they get their power from Satan just like you do. They would say their power to cast out demons comes from God. And Jesus' point is, if they can get power from God to do that, why can't I? Why can't I be empowered by the Spirit to do this? In 28 is where Jesus brings it back to this question that the people have asked. The Pharisees have had their chance to answer it, and now Jesus is going to take his. He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying that the most logical explanation to what is happening, to what the people are seeing, to what he's doing, is that he's doing exactly what he says he's doing. He said, by the power of the God, God's Spirit, as the Spirit of God empowers Jesus to go on the mission of God, which is taking back the world for the kingdom of God, as he does those things, he's going to be casting out demons. He's going to be taking back territory for God. And that's what he's doing, and that's what makes sense. And he explains this by this analogy of the strong man. He says, how can somebody go into a strong man's house and take his stuff unless they first tie up the strong man? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing as he's here on the earth. He comes in, he, he's, he's taking the enemy's power so that he can take the enemy's stuff. Satan's domain is in this world and Jesus has broken into it with the kingdom of God and he's taking back people from the clutches of demons and sin and death and he's empowering them by the Spirit to live righteously for the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing. He's saying, if, if he does this, and the implication is that he, that he does, if he does it by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon them. He's answering the question that the people have. He's saying, I am the son of David. I am the one who is going to bring God's kingdom in the world. And this is exactly what you're seeing happening here right now. He's saying that's the most logical understanding of what's taking place. I'm doing exactly what I said I would do and exactly what the Old Testament said I would do and exactly what God sent me into the world to do. But the Pharisees deny it because they're jealous. And verse 30 is where he transitions to talk about the exclusive nature of who he is. Starts it off in verse 30 says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In both of those parallel statements, there's only two options. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's only two choices. There's, there's, there's no middle ground. There's no neutral third option. There's no multiple choice. There are two places. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either gathering with him or you're scattering. There's no middle. And this applies to everyone. It's not just to the people there in Jesus' day. But it's helpful to think about what happened that day as Jesus said these words. Think about it. There's, there's the crowds, there are the Pharisees, and there's Jesus. And he heals this guy, and he's there with his disciples. The crowds ask, can this be the son of David? Pharisees say, no, he's empowered by Satan. And then Jesus responds. And he gets to this point, and he, and he looks at the crowd who's standing there. And they're faced with the fact that these Pharisees who are there are their religious leaders. They're the people that they've known all their lives as the righteous people who who lead the community religiously. And Jesus comes in and he says, you are either with me or you are with them. You either believe that I am really doing what I said I would do by the power of the Spirit of God or you are with them calling me a demon. There's no middle option. And, and everybody there, whether they're a Pharisee or just a normal person who happened to walk by and see what was going on, they are forced to respond to Jesus. They have to decide, am I going to be someone who says he is demonic or am I going to be someone who follows him in discipleship? And we have to do the same thing. There isn't a third option for us either. And so what we need to ask ourselves is what group are we in? Are we with the Pharisees who look at what Jesus does in the Gospels and says, I can't possibly be empowered by God? Or are we people who are following him in discipleship, living on mission? And I'm not, I'm not talking about whether you prayed a prayer or, or signed a card or were baptized or joined a church. I'm talking about right now, this, this point in your life, this past week, today, are you someone who is with Jesus or not? Are you someone who is actively going out gathering with Jesus or are you someone who is scattering? And notice that, that both of these things are active. There is no passive choice. There is no, I'm just going to sit back on my couch and do nothing and wait for other people to do this for me. You are either with Jesus gathering or you are scattering against him. And so you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, which one am I? And as you do that, you need to remember that what we saw in verse 25 means that God knows our thoughts. And so even as I, as I think about my answer to that question, and I think about my life last week, I think about my life today. 
He knows exactly which group we're in. We are either with him or we are against him. And being passive isn't an option. It's because of this exclusive nature of who Jesus is that, that he goes to where he goes to next. So where he goes in verses 31 and 32 where he talks about this thing called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, because of this fact that Jesus is exclusive, you have to either be with him or against him. He explains this, this sin. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. He basically says here, any sin and any blasphemy will be forgiven. It's capable of forgiveness, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he says it won't be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. It won't be forgiven ever. And so there's two questions that we need to ask and we need to answer about this. The first is, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's, it's clearly bad, so we want to know what it is so we don't do it. And the second question is, can we or, or do people do this today? So the first question, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, in this passage, it's pretty obvious. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is taking what the Spirit of God has done, this miraculous thing by healing this man, casting out demons, and ascribing it or attributing it to, to Satan by saying, the Holy Spirit didn't do that, Satan did. That's a bad thing. The Pharisees shouldn't have done. And I think that Jesus is saying in this passage that that kind of act is unforgivable. Today, I think in general, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we can't, we can't look at, at what Jesus is doing because Jesus isn't here right now and, and say that, you know, it's, it's Satan. So it's got to be something slightly different today because we live in a different time period than they did in the Gospels. So I think what it is, is a, it's a continual, determined, outright rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Someone's life. It's a continual, determined, outright rejection of the power of God through the Holy Spirit working in someone's life. I say it's continual because it's not just a one-time thing. It's not something that you just accidentally do one day and then you're outside the reach of God's forgiveness. It's a, it's a continual thing. It's also a determined thing. It's something that, that's thought through. It's a set course of action that people have set out on. It's not accidental. It's not just by happenstance that they just one day are walking along and, oops, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. And it's outright. It's something that, that's done with, with outward, specific, intentional action. The, the Pharisees, what they do, uh, it's in public. It's bold. It's clear. It's, it's, it's black and white. They say Jesus is empowered by Satan. There's no wiggle room. It's continual, it's determined, it's outright. It's not something we can do by mistake. It's not something we can do without thinking about. It's intentional. The second question, can or do people commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit today? 
I think yes, they do. People commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in our day when they reject what the Spirit of God would do in them, specifically in bringing them to salvation in Christ. Let me say that again. People commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in our day when they reject the Holy Spirit calling them to salvation in Christ. And again, this isn't just a one-time thing. It's not like if, if, if someone is, is someplace and they hear the gospel preached and they say, oh, I don't think that's really for me, that, that they're toast forever. It's not what it is. It's a continual, determined, thought-through, outright action. And I think that when, when people do that, when they reject the clear motivation of the Holy Spirit calling them to repentance and salvation in Christ, that there will come a point when they do that for the last time because the Holy Spirit is going to quit calling them to repentance. And Jesus' point for us And the people there that day is that the kingdom of God comes in power. It comes in power by the Spirit of God. And all of us and all of them have to respond to that. We have to respond one way or the other. And if we make, or people make, an intentional, determined, consistent decision to reject the spirits moving in their hearts, they're going to find themselves at the, at the end of their lives outside the reach of God's forgiveness. He says everything, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, even speaking against Jesus. But continually rejecting the Holy Spirit will result in those people being outside of the grace of God in Christ because they'll have never trusted in him. But even though, even though some people, some of our, our friends, some of our family, some of our neighbors may end up there, I don't think that's the reality for most people. I don't think most people make this kind of intentional, thought-through, consistent decision to reject Jesus. Most people aren't like the Pharisees in this passage. Most people are those, and, and maybe even some of us are in this group, where we want that third option, we, we want to find that, that middle road between being with Jesus and obeying what he says and doing what he says and living on mission and rejecting him. We want, we want to be passive. We want to just sit back, let other people do the work, not necessarily obey him all the time, not necessarily think about what he wants us to think about all the time, just kind of do whatever we want until Sundays roll around or Wednesdays roll around. And then at that point, we'll decide we're going to start living for God. But the problem is that that place doesn't exist. There, there is no passive option. There is no middle ground. We are either with Jesus or against him. We are either gathering with Jesus or we are scattering. So the most certain course of action for us is pretty clear. If we don't ever, have to, ever want to have to worry about being in this place where we reject Jesus, 
We need to be actively, continually, determinedly pursuing Christ in discipleship. If we are actively with him, if we are following him, if we are trying to do what he calls us to in his word, then we are never going to be in that place where we are against him. And don't say, I'm a Christian, I'm always with Jesus. That's true, theologically. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, so you are always with Jesus. But through, through a bad witness, through a bad lifestyle, through a bad attitude, through a, a lack of concern for the things of God, you can find yourself against Jesus as you live. You can find yourself discouraging other Christians, steering people away from the gospel. And in that way, you work against Jesus. So the response that we should have to this passage is to be intentional about being with Jesus, to be intentional about gathering with Jesus. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Go home tonight. Ask yourself that question. Which, which side are you on? Ask, ask your friends that question. And since God knows your thoughts and you know that he knows your thoughts, ask him that question. Let's pray. Father, help us to follow Jesus closely. Help us to be with him in discipleship. Help us to be with him on mission. Help us to be actively pursuing a relationship with him. Help us by the power of the, of the same spirit that casts out demons in the gospels, help us pursue that actively. Increase our passion for the things of you, the things of Christ. Increase our passion to tell others about what Christ has done for us. God, take away a passive option from us. Fill us and consume us with your spirit so that we cannot be passive. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you sent him even at the point when we were your enemies, you sent him into the world because of your love and because of your mercy and because of your grace and he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live and he died for our sin, for all those thoughts that we don't keep captive. He died for all the ways that by laziness or obedience we line up against him. So God, send your spirit. Help us to repent. And help us by the same grace that saves us 
obey your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.